This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast, and my name is Steve Cassingham, and I interview the greatest of all time in the sustainability space. I'm passionate about sharing stories of those that are paving a path for the rest of us to live a more sustainable life. Today, I'm going to be talking to the founder of Biome, and Biome is company that makes hydroponic plant walls and they're incredible products um, and they look amazing. We talk about everything from pottery to uh, living completely off grid to air sustainability in the home and how plants can serve like this huge role in really purifying our air and and making us healthier. Um, So I'm really excited about this one. Um, So let's dive right in. Hey Colin, how you doing? Doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on the show. Honestly, I'm super excited to, you know, dive into everything with you um, just because I think you have such an interesting story and and what you're working on is incredibly innovative. So um, I'd love to just kind of start out with, you know, where your story started. Where are you originally from? It's great to be here and and be able to share a bit. I grew up in Pennsylvania um, on the eastern side of the state um, in Allentown. And uh, from there, went off to school and, you know, lived a pretty normal life, went off to school, went off into business and was like really interested in how businesses could essentially just like operate. I was very interested in entrepreneurship from a young age, like classic lemonade stand and like worked a job since I was 11 with like a family friends company. And so I always had this like deep interest in how business can be, you know, valuable and create value. And so when I went off to school, then I started learning about the other consequences of, of business and seeing uh, research about climate change and seeing research about deforestation and social inequality. And I just started to get really anxious of the fact that um, our species seem to be doing a really bad job with managing our relationship on the planet and with each other. So I kind of got jaded with, with all of it, kind of with uh, early stage capitalism um, as I now see it. And, um, and so that got me questioning a whole lot of stuff. It was like late teens, you know, a very angsty period. So I decided to leave it all and, um, threw away my laptop and phone and kind of went off grid, um, took a train to Seattle from Philly and then, uh, took a a small seaplane to a little Island. And I ended up living there for about six months with a, a older couple who were foragers. And um, my goal was to learn about a way of life that I didn't have any experience with that was ideally pre-industrial in every way possible, pre-agriculture, pre-tech, um, to figure out what sustainability actually could look like and, and what it looked like before we started all of this innovation. Um, and, and that really was the, I'd say the primary investment um, in that I made into, you know, how to define a sustainable life. Uh, and that's really what kickstarted, I'd say my, my journey into what I'm doing now. And do you remember kind of what, what sparked that need to just kind of leave and leave it all behind? Cause I mean, so you went to Drexel and you, you worked with like the Drexel smart home. Um, and that was, I'm guessing that was kind of your intro into more of like sustainable living. Well, so I actually have uh, two different college careers, if you will. Um, the first, I was at Temple University studying business, and that's when I had this existential moment. Now, 
uh, when I was 24, I went back to school um, to work with the university's resources. And that's when I went to Drexel and got really plugged into um, environmental movements and programs and, and research and figuring out, okay, how are we going to turn some of these grassroots ideas that I have into more scalable uh, either organizations or companies. So that was, that was sort of phase two of um, sustainability. And that was really the on-ramp to founding Biome, um, actually working with the Strexel Smart House organization, really cool program, um, federal funding to renovate this historic building in Philadelphia, old Victorian home into a, a lab. And I, and in the future, uh, it's kind of ongoing, this living learning laboratory um, for clean tech and innovation. So really cool student body there, you know, interested in all kinds of progressive ideas and, and lifestyles. That's very cool. So, so how did you meet this couple that you uh, went and lived with for a while? I mean, how did that kind of come about? Well, and this is the beautiful like undercurrent of, uh, of everything through technology. And so I think this is the f kind of the fun dance between nature and kind of getting back to our roots, but also the fact that technology is this mass enabling thing. So of course there was, you know, an online forum and community of farmers. Uh, some people are probably familiar with woofing. Um, so it was, it was similar to a woofing program. It's called HelpX and it's a little less farming, a little more just kind of hands-on uh, support. And so you're able to see people's profiles, see the life they live. Um, you know, they would hitchhike into town and go to the local library on the island. And um, that's how they, you know, manage their profile and got people to come and, and be part of this lifestyle with them. So yeah, I just found this hyper remote group of people and wanted to, to join them. So kind of, got the sense of trust and then uh, said goodbye to everything. <laughs> wow. I mean, so, so what was it like when you arrived there? I mean, was it, was it kind of like a culture shock? Was it hard to make that transition or was it kind of like, Hey, I'm ready for this. Let's do it. Oh, I was so ready. Um, I was so ready to be detached from material things. Um, I was so ready to feel what, what life was like for people that I had just assumed were way more deeply connected with the world than, than I was, you know, uh, you know, I'm a cell phone baby. I, you know, had all of the apps and Facebook when it was out, you know, it's like grew up highly connected. And so I had, I had for that year leading up to it been very jaded and skeptical of all these things and whether or not they were actually contributing value. So by the time the seaplane landed there and I had a backpack with like, you know, a pair of pants and like two pairs of socks and some t-shirts, you know, and they picked me up in this just like 19, early eighties, like Pontiac. And, you know, it's just, and basically coasted back to the, the house. Um, you know, they, they just welcomed me in a way that felt that I was very ready for. So how did that, so when you finished that, what did that kind of do for how you want to live the rest of your life? How did it kind of change your trajectory? Um, on a personal level, I think it's been really amazing that I found at a pretty early age, what I think is the secret to a happy life, um, which is to have a garden and grow food and to have, you know, a loving partner and you drink tea and enjoy time, you know, just, you know, time is, time is the thing that we have. And 
So I think that discovery was, was really great on a personal level and a thing that I continue to try to live with. And then um, I think a really large takeaway was that the natural world provides everything that our species has ever used to get us to this point and is the only thing that our species can use to progress us into the future. You know, we, we are on a closed planet and there's finite resources and I'm a firm believer in abundance that we can create abundance, but um, you know, there are bounds. And so this idea of, wow, we are so reliant on nature and we are treating nature poorly. And I just had a lot of time to think about, wow, all these bad ways we're treating nature, they're actually coming back and hurting us. Um, and so this idea that we hurt nature at our own demise and we can help nature to our own benefit. Um, that was one of the big kernels of that, that trip. Um, you know, seeing how you could harvest some like, you know, nettle, singing nettle from like the edge of a forest and, you know, it might not be growing in quantity, but if you just nurture it a little bit and you maybe move, remove some of the shading branches above it, you can, you can make that thing grow a lot more and you can have a lot more food by just putting in a little bit of effort. Um, and so this idea of like integrating some human intervention with natural systems was, was born there. And then I'd say the third takeaway from Lopez. So I was on Lopez Island in the San Juan Islands. Um, the third takeaway was really just observation based sitting on one of the hills on the Island. You get this incredible view of the Puget Sound uh, and the, the accompanying oil tankers uh, every 15, 20 minutes at that period uh, in during that year. And it became really, really uh, overwhelming knowing that I was sitting on this hill living super sustainably and it didn't matter at all. <laughs> um, that's really what propelled me to come back into quote unquote, the modern world and, you know, go back to school and have this passion to start a company, to just try to contribute something um, to, to create abundance, to work with natural systems and, and really to question my earliest belief or my earliest uh, curiosity of can our species actually cohabitate on this planet successfully. And I think that still remains to be seen, um, but the goal was to at least be someone trying to figure that out. So, I mean, I guess when you, when you think about it in some ways, you know, as sustainably as you can live your life, there's always an entire side of the, that's kind of almost offsetting what you're doing, um, essentially. And it's how do you, how do you, you know, find this way that we can all cohabitate the earth and, and be able to live sustainably in a way that kind of is feasible for everybody. And I think that's kind of the greater challenge. Um, and I think that's where, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that technology and nature can kind of go hand in hand where one is not more powerful than the other um, in the sense of like the responsibility in order to do right. Yeah, for sure. The idea has been that um, one plus one does not actually equal two. And I say this because, you know, in the natural world, one plus one really never equals two. It's, it's really only in the human um, engineered systems and mathematics, because when nature combines things, you get more than the sum of the parts. You know, when, when you grow a single tree, it's only a single tree, but when you grow two trees, you know, you only start with two trees. Well, their root systems are already intertwining and helping 
support each other. So you have a support system and two trees, and then you have a greater canopy to support more birds and other organisms. So you, you get one plus one can equal a lot more than two in, in natural uh, uh, systems. And so the goal was, well, let's study natural systems and then see where we can unlock value. And um, back in 2008, my personal fixation was on climate change, you know, and it, it remains. Um, and so I started looking at how natural systems manage uh, atmospheric gases and, you know, carbon dioxide primarily. How does, how does nature already handle uh, climate change and, and manage it for us? And the oceans are our biggest sink. So I looked into oceans and I studied ocean systems and uh, the atmospheric chemistry there. And then looked at forests and was like, well, we, we can try to seed the oceans and help. We can try to help forest and reforest uh, land. But um, those, those impacts weren't where I felt like I could develop or contribute. Um, and then simultaneously, I got reading about urban air pollution uh, in cities and how our highways are horrible places to live near or work near because the tires are breaking off trillion billions of pieces of little plastic and our brake pads are wearing down on our roads and all the exhaust from trucks and cars. And, and then I was like, got reading in about indoor air quality and started to become really concerned um, because, you know, for instance, the EPA says our indoor air in, in the U.S., in our homes and in our offices is generally three to five times more toxic than our outdoor air. Um, wow. And this is, this is what like really kind of changed my whole perspective on um, kind of helping the planet because it almost seemed like in a way we have to help ourselves first because right now we're destroying our own well-being by living indoors. And, you know, the, it, kind of in the same way of like personal relationships, we can't often help other people until we've helped ourselves. And I think until we can, can raise people that aren't suffering from debilitating chronic diseases, um, until we have children that are raised in environments where they're not getting uh, chronic diseases from an early age, it's going to be really hard for us to care and nurture for the planet. Um, and also, you know, just from a business standpoint, 10 years ago, there was much less interest in scrubbing CO2 and, and whatnot. So I thought the indoor space is actually a really interesting opportunity to impact human health in a huge way and also set the stage for um, maybe longer term outdoor implementations. So I got thinking about how to, how can nature clean indoor air? Uh, and that started a whole bunch of research. Um, I was really fortunate to be at Drexel University in Philadelphia, where they had at the largest time, uh, at the time, the largest vertical garden in North America. Um, and I was researching how they intended for that to be an air filtration system by leveraging technology developed by NASA, whereby a fan system pulls air through the roots of plants, and in doing so, activates the microbiome on those roots, billions of microbes and you know, bacteria that normally take stuff out of soil and metabolize uh, soil nutrients, but turns out 
they are just as happy to metabolize uh, nutrients and things found in, in air. Um, so, you know, the same particulates can be kind of extracted from air and then metabolized. And what you get is you, you basically turn air pollution into microbe food, which feeds plants. And this living system takes a waste product and makes a beautiful plant. Uh, and I thought this was just really compelling and also started looking around to see like where I could buy something that actively filtered air through plant roots. And, you know, it turns out there, there weren't options. Um, and that's really what, what started, uh, what it, I am. Wow. So what, what did the first prototype look like for this? Cause I mean, you, you had kind of like the plant wall as an example. Um, but how did you start to turn this into more of a product that could be scalable? Um, because obviously that's, that's the challenge. And especially, um, you know, you're, you're from San Francisco now and, you know, that area is, is just so full of, you know, your offices, it's city, it's, you know, pollution everywhere. And, you know, I also come from Silicon Valley and when you're in that area, all you you spend a lot of time in those offices and, you know, the Googles, the LinkedIn, it's, you know, 18 hours a day working, you're going crazy, you're inside all the time. And I, I know that, they're focused on, you know, how do we shift this workplace culture and make it better? Um, and so how did you think about scaling this system and actually turning it into a product? Well, it's been a, an interesting introspective uh, process and journey, you know, as, as someone that comes from a background now of, you know, small scale organic farming and, uh, and, you know, handmade ceramics. I studied pottery and ceramics for a few years. Um, there, there's often an approach to be artisanal and, uh, create custom things, um, that I really value that I think is uh, incredible and is a big part of what makes us human. And then I also see that our problems that we're facing are so vast and so pervasive and affect every human that if the systems we're creating aren't incredibly scalable, their reach and the ability for them to actually impact us is quite limited. So from a very early stage, I had to break from the artisanal farming perspective and think more as a technologist as to what will allow us to purify air in any conceivable space using microbes and plants. And that really quickly shifted um, my DIY in my Philadelphia apartment, like uh, DIY green walls that I was building um, out of felt and, you know, kind of traditional, you know, felt pocket green walls into, all right, folks, we need to develop a full computer that's connected to the cloud that is sensor driven so we can adapt the, the environmental conditions of our microbes and plants in order uh, for it to survive in a basement with really high humidity and no natural light or a super bright skyscraper that is hot because the sun is beating through the windows and the, t and the humidity is just, well, you know, variable. And, and so we knew early on that we needed a thinking adaptive computer um, that was fully automated and uh, not only was a hardware device with a full electronics component, but also includes really a, a, what I think is the future, uh, greenware, greenware, hardware, software, 
we're seeing greenware in mycelium. We're seeing it in bacteria that grow us, you know, proteins. There's, um, there's a massive new and exciting space where we are actually going to be rather than extracting our natural resources, just we're going to be growing our own natural resources. And that's, that's where I think the future gets really exciting and bright. But so, yeah, this whole idea of mass scalability of computerized systems is this very interesting combination of tech and nature. But this also gets back to that whole kind of Lopez existential crisis. If we can help nature a little with our own ingenuity, um, it turns out that it can actually help us a lot more. We get this multiplier. And so at Biome, the real goal is how do we make one plus one equal the highest number possible? And it turns out that that, start, that number is starting to get really big, um, not only because you know, our systems are filtering particulate matter out of the air, they're filtering volatile organic compounds, which are a big reason why indoors are so toxic. That's like the glues under your carpet and the paint on your walls and, you know, just the off-gassing from so many things. So filtering that. But plants, unlike a traditional air filter that can only remove some bad things, um, we're also generating oxygen, which is a, the best stimulant for the human brain ever found. Um, we're reducing carbon dioxide levels through photosynthesis, which Harvard has shown um, if you can decrease your air, carbon dioxide levels in a space by about 50%, you can also increase cognitive function by 50%. So this is the, the oxygen CO2 relationship in indoors is, is really fascinating. And, and then more recently, uh, the, these other benefits of nature have come out. So obviously in the past three months, the world has changed tremendously. And a lot more people are now a lot more aware of the fact that our indoor spaces by and large, determine our personal health. And if we can create environments where pathogens don't like to be, then we can really impact human health and the spread of uh, infectious disease. And this is where we really see a huge part of the future. And that's because, for instance, humidity levels, when they're higher in a space, A, they're more comfortable, but they also break down the walls of viruses, the cell walls. They also lubricate the breathing passageways uh, for people. So we're, our immune systems are better able to fight off pathogens. So simply boosting the local humidity in a space um, is, is extraordinarily helpful. Um, filtering air is also really helpful for removing things. But another value, like, you know, this is where one plus one starts to equal 20. Um, when you bring bacteria, beneficial bacteria into a space, you actually rewild it. Um, mm. a, a space indoors without much diversity, without pets, without plants, and it's just people, you generally only get bacteria that like to feed on the breakdown of human cells and things. But when you bring in plants and the outdoors, you actually contribute a huge variety. It's almost like a probiotic for your, your living space. And that competitively excludes pathogens. It's kind of like musical chairs. So if you have a lot more people, or in this case, bacteria competing for the very few resources in a space, it's just harder for a pathogen to monopolize all those resources. So this um, biodiversity exclusion principle is a big piece of information that we're trying to share with the world right now because 
of the approach to antibacterials and antimicrobial products that are starting to become um, really highly discussed. Um, and so that's a whole other area that we can delve into if you're interested in that space because really cool research to share there. But the goal here has been scalability and maximizing what we can make one plus one equal. Well, and I would, I would love to dive into that because, I mean, the one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is, you know, in our indoor living spaces, it seemingly is like, oh, well, we're just indoors and that is what it is. We'll open the windows. We'll let some fresh air in. But it's that... It's the stuff that you don't see, the the stuff like you mentioned, the carp, the glue on the carpet and all those little things that are off gassing. So in an office space, you have a lot of that kind of going on. But I'm curious to hear like from your research, how how in the home space is really that been changing or is there a change kind of already happening? Um, and where does kind of that space need to go in order for us to honestly take care of ourselves because at the end of the day that that is the most important thing and you know mental health is becoming a huge issue just across the board um and i i personally think that environment environment really contributes a lot to that indeed it does um we break this down into cognitive function um, emotional well-being and physical health those are three huge ways that our you know environment whether that's you know a home or an office impact our well-being. Within the world of healthy furniture, um, which is a really fascinating space, which needs more and more innovation, um, some of the leaders are actually in workplace products. So um, if you happen to work at a big tech company, you, you probably work in one of the healthiest environments that exists. Um, far healthier than a hospital setting, you know, and, and dramatically healthier than most homes. And that's because a lot of these companies have looked at the research and they've seen that if, if we don't have healthy people that are breathing clean air and that are emotionally, you know, relatively stable, they're not going to perform well. <laughs> they're not going to do the jobs that we're paying them to do as efficiently. So there have been major investments into uh, material transparency as it applies to consumer or uh, commercial products. That is, on the consumer side, it's a way bigger uh, <laughs> unregulated environment um, to the point where um, just you know, for reference, our federal government uh, does not regulate the chemicals that can be used in consumer products. So there are at this point probably over 70,000, last I checked there were 65,000 um, chemicals that are listed um, by our federal government that can be used in products um, which have never been tested on human beings. Uh, wow. So that's, that's the state of chemistry in our country. And, um, and not only do, do we not know how those 70-ish thousand chemicals uh, react in people in the short term, we don't know how they engage with our bodies in the long term. And we also, we especially don't know how they interact with each other, um, kind of this soup of chemistry. Um, so, it, to say that we don't know is uh, uh, an understatement. Um, and so the approach here is, since we're not going to be able to dial back all of this chemistry, um, the, I think the primary goals are, one, open up your windows whenever you can. Um, unless you're by like a bus route or, you know, an energy facility, uh, it's generally a good rule of thumb to have circulation. That's like the best thing uh, you can do. Um, 
The second thing though, is to try to seek out materially transparent uh, products, you know, and they, they do exist. Um, I have to give Ikea credit. They've, they have had a pretty solid material transparency goal and uh, chemical reductions goal. They were pretty progressive with removing formaldehyde from uh, many of their products. Uh, it sounds nuts, but formaldehyde is the largest indoor air contaminant, uh, VOC. It's found in, I think, 90% of uh, U.S. buildings. Wow. Um, uh, it was, you know, flame retardants are super common classes of compounds that are used um, in most states um, to prevent our buildings from catching on fire. But this gets to back to this whole antimicrobial conversation. The things that we do to keep us safe often end up causing us chronic issues. Um, so, you know, on this note, antimicrobial products um, are, well, the CDC has said that, Center for Disease Controls has said that antimicrobial soaps do not uh, clean any better than soap and water. Um, they have actually banned most varieties of antimicrobials. Um, and then uh, Reuters just published a really awesome um, article highlighting numerous researchers that have found that antimicrobial products are linked to thyroid cancer. Um, so basically we're creating, we're coding our spaces in hormone disruptors um, and, and other compounds which um, don't actually make us that much safer. Maybe, you know, if you have an immune, immunocompromised population, different ball game, you know, like that's a more sensitive group, but for the, the broad population, what we're actually doing is creating in many cases, more problems than we're solving. Um, and, and that's not even including the fact that antimicrobial services and, uh, and products actually are shown to breed superbugs because if you give a pathogen, something that is trying to kill it, it, you know, you might kill the first, you know, couple hundred million, but one of them will evolve a resistance and now you have a resistant bug. Um, and so again, the tools that we use, uh, we have to know the intended and unintended consequences of them um, because, you know, our, our environments are complex spaces. And so uh, for the indoors and for the home, um, material transparency is really key simple chemistry is very key. Um, it's hard to state that enough, you know, simple woods, you know, simple furnishings. It's kind of like a diet, you know, like if your grandparents ate it, it's probably good to eat. It's kind of similar with, you know, materials and products. So what would be some good resources for somebody if they're like, hey, I kind of want to shift my, you know, furniture buying practices. I want to find some, some better places. Do you know of any that would really help um, in in transitioning that? Um, because there is a lot of kind of greenwashing that goes on in the industry where they're like, this is sustainably built, but it's because they used one material that is sustainable and the rest is not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is a, an emerging space for sure. Um, one organization that I really love, uh, they manage uh, multiple certification labels. Uh, one is for probably the most rigorous green building program um, in the in the world. The International Living Future Institute uh, runs the Living Building Challenge, um, and the Living Building Challenge is a multi-thronged approach to building the 
most sustainable buildings on earth. It's super rigorous. Um, the ILFI, as they're called, they also produce the DECLARE label. And the DECLARE label is basically a nutrition label for products. And it is rigorous. Uh, as a manufacturer, you have to list every single component in your product. You have to list exactly what it's made out of. Um, you have to know down to a parts per million quantity what is in each type of you know, material, whether that's paint um, or if it's an alloy of metal, you have to know every single base metal. Um, you have to have your electronics be certified uh, row house or you know, use green chemistry in their production. Um, it's, a, it's an extremely transparent label and um, it's a really great place to start to find products that are like literally the most cutting edge things out there because the brands that are you know investing in this level of transparency um you know they have leadership um that you know is is very progressive and, and doing really cool things so it's a little more commercially focused right now because that's where most of this energy has been um but it's it's a really exciting place to start looking transparency has been a huge subject lately um and i think it's it's warranted because you know people with with the internet and the ability to access almost anything from across the world um, I think consumers are really craving that transparency they're saying hey what what am I consuming what am I purchasing you know how is it impacting other things because you know for example how much water it takes to you know make a piece of clothing that isn't sustainable a lot of people just look at the clothing and the material but they don't think of the manufacturing process and i think you know these steps that are being taken to be more sustainable in the the production side are that's actually creating a bigger impact than just the product itself yeah absolutely and you know transparency is it's i think going to be coming deeper and deeper into our products and even into our organizations and corporations um I think we want to see how the, the organizations that we're supporting are operating, um, how they pay their people. Is that equitable? Um, how they get their inputs and resources? Are they destroying rainforests? You know, like um, it's, I think it's really compelling and exciting that we're starting to almost have a consciousness about our capitalism and our consumerism. Um, and that capitalism 2.0, as I think of it, is a really exciting space where we can merge consciousness and the future um, and, and have a value for the future and you know, want to collectively create a space that capitalism can still exist in, um, that you know, it, it hasn't self-imploded. Uh, I think that's the direction that I'm really excited about. Um, and to that end, you know, we've incorporated Biome as a public benefit corporation um, which is, is separate from the B Corp, which is also really cool. Um, but a public benefit corporation is actually a subchapter of a, of a traditional uh, C Corp. And what it allows the team, the, the, the founders to do is to actually build in a second bottom line. Um, so all, you know, all normal corporations have their, their singular bottom line of, you know, generating shareholder value, right? Like we have to generate profit for our shareholders. But um, when you have a legally protected second bottom line uh, that you get to determine, that means that your executives can't be fired if they make a decision that loses the company money, but delivers on 
your second bottom line. And I think this is a really powerful tool for helping us evolve beyond kind of this, the short-term stock market mentality of you know, short-term profits because the, it, it enables leaders to not be worried about getting fired if they invest in something more long-term. And so you know, with Biome, we have a second bottom line to purify the world's air. And that means, that means a lot to us because um, we can start to make decisions maybe that lose money. Maybe we are subsidizing super low cost units for schools. Um, maybe it allows a whole lot of flexibility. And so uh, I think transparency is gonna bleed all the way deep into our, our organizations and our, our hopefully our political systems as well. Um, I think it's needed what's the what's kind of the future of biome uh in in your vision where do you want to take it um you know right now you guys are definitely you know crushing the commercial space um but how do you guys see the future of biome and the impact that you guys can have uh it's a it's a big grassy field with uh, a whole lot of discovery and an opportunity i guess um to explain a little more functionally what what biome makes uh we make uh, wall-mounted and freestanding, fully hydroponic, no dirt, vertical garden systems that are computer controlled and manage their own plants and, and grow clean air with all of the stuff that I've mentioned before. Um, additionally, they're you know, Im imbued with a whole bunch of sensors. And so what we see is First and foremost, the ability to deploy nature anywhere. Um, and this is, this is just fundamental to, I think, creating human spaces that are desirable and healthy. You know, we just, we want to bring nature back into our urbanization because that's how we've evolved and it's really good for us. So we want to make nature ubiquitous again. And then what we also want to do is help understand how our environments around us are actually functioning and understanding through data are they supporting us are they hindering us what can we be doing better and and working with this new class of environmental data around our air quality around our acoustics around our thermal comfort all these things that really define our our functioning as as animals and also our cognition as humans and our emotions as you know, spiritual people, um, how can we leverage and, and use this data in ways that can further make spaces healthier and more desirable? So we're really seeing this frontier around uh, deep health um, and ideally being a, a tool for researchers to help better understand how our environments impact well-being. Um, this is an area that, that really excites us. The overall health of, of a space, I think, I mean, it's just so important. I mean, for example, I'm, I'm sitting right next to an air filter that we have um, in our place and it, you know, it purifies air, you know, well, but, but how well, you know, you always, you always wonder, and it's not, it's not a plant. And so that was actually, I, I guess, a follow-up question that I had as well is, you know, you mentioned opening windows as, as a first step that somebody could do to just purify their place a little bit more. Um, but what about on those really hot days, for example, um, you know, in the summertime when, you know, you open those windows, but 
you know, you, you got to run the air conditioner as well. Um, once you close those windows, you know, what is that doing to, to your air quality inside the space? Um, because, you know, heating and air, depending on where you live is a, it's a huge industry. Pretty much every, every home has it. How do those things in terms of air filtration and air circulation, how does that really affect the living space and how I guess can air filters help with that? And then further, how can plant air filters help more? perfectly stated there's a lot of variability um, in our in our buildings and where they're located and, and how we can manage them and especially as we get more intense weather we're going to have more intense heat spells it's going to it's going to become harder to manage uh, our indoor environments um, this is you know a problem that will only get more intense as time goes on uh, so opening windows won't always be an option uh, for sure um, Having filters in spaces is without a doubt helpful. Um, it reduces a lot, of, a lot of air pollution, particulate matter, the stuff that goes deep into our lungs and uh, is, is, is really harmful on a lot of levels. Like, I mean, particulate, small particulate matter is linked to you know, like Alzheimer's and dementia because like these particles, they're so fine, they go into your lungs, through your lung membrane, into your bloodstream and circulate around your body and find organs to hang out in. You know, this is that what we breathe becomes part of us. And, uh, and so if you're able to filter that out with a HEPA filter or something like, or something similar, awesome start. You generally, you generally don't want particulate matter around. Now, what those filters are also removing are beneficial microbes that are in your air um, and so you start to get this, you're approaching this idea of sterilization. The idea is let's remove everything and then, but we're also getting rid of the good stuff. So it's something interesting to be aware of. I still think without a doubt, HEPA filters are important and useful. Um, the other thing that HEPA filters don't catch though, are those VOC compounds, those uh, volatile organics. And that's the stuff from our glues and all of our materials, technology products like computers and stuff and TVs, they off gas lots of compounds. So uh, those are the gases that are so small that they go right through HEPA. You generally need a activated carbon filter, uh, which is like an additional layer within the filtration system um, that can remove those gases. Um, that reduces the efficiency of the system because then you have to push the air through a whole nother filter media that's even smaller. Um, and so you get less efficiency out of it. But again, that's a, that's a really great tool. You know, VOC removal is, is generally really great. Um, and that's pretty much the, the linear worldview of air filtration. You know, that's, that's the way we see making things less bad. And it's great for many aspects of human health, but again, where we see the value of nature, not just in biome, but in general, is that nature has the ability to make things better than less bad um, and actually make things good and healthy and, and beneficial. And that usually happens through diversity, which I think is also a really important thing to call out right now. We are, as individuals and as communities, we are stronger together with diversity um, than we are apart and with sterility. And that applies to our microbes and it applies to our societies. So within this world of indoor air quality, we really wanna be thinking about what, what 
in the natural world is unique and makes us healthy and makes animals healthy. And it's, it's through oxygenation of air. It's through having carbon dioxide levels that are close to outdoors. Um, you know, for, for some perspective here, carbon dioxide outdoors, like climate change level carbon dioxide is about 415 parts per million. It's probably gone up. Um, as soon as you go inside, it's generally 600 parts per million. Um, normal indoor air is closer to like 1500, uh, conference room air or bedtime or like bedroom air, uh, after you've been sleeping for a while is often like 2,500 parts per million. Um, gyms and workout facilities where you have a lot of people breathing a lot, um, during hard cardio, you can hit 4,000 parts per million or more. And that's interesting because carbon dioxide is not usually a toxin. You need like super high levels for it to be toxic. But Harvard School of Public Health has found that the difference between 600 parts per million and 1500 parts per million is a 50% drop in cognitive function. And that's measured across creativity, memory, um, and interpersonal like communication skills. So what we're seeing is, is like for people that like biohacking and like optimizations, like CO2 is enormous. Like it is the biggest hack. It's like exponentially stronger than coffee, right? So um, when we look at making things more than less bad, CO2 is a really cool thing to, to enhance and improve. And then we get to some of those other things like humidity creation and, and rewilding. And so these are areas where it really does take biological systems um, to get these additional benefits. Now, I'm also someone with a ton of houseplants. Uh, you don't necessarily need uh, a, a, you know, a sophisticated system to help create a healthier environment. Um, it's all a matter of degree. And generally, some is always better than none. So you know, houseplants are a really good addition. Um, generally, the more biomass you can fit into a space, the, the better and healthier your space will be. Um, there's some really funny misinformation about like, don't put plants in your bedroom or don't put like this plant in your bedroom. That's um, really baloney. Um, but you know, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. So what, um, so in terms of houseplants, are there ones that are better than others um, or just plants in general? Plants in general are great. Uh, plants in general, as a rule of thumb, you're going to get a lot of benefits. With that said, uh, the early NASA researchers, Wolverton, published a book on the 50 best house plants uh, to clean your air. And uh, those are a lot of species that people are familiar with, like spider plants and ficus and dracaena. Um, there's, there's some really common um, tropical house plants. And what's interesting, these plants have unique microbiomes on their roots that allow them to metabolize certain VOC pollutants better, like a lot better than certain other plants. Um, now, if you're really trying to get these air purification boosts, you have to filter the air through the root system. So yes, there are definitely plants that clean the air better than others, um, but without actively filtering it um, through the roots, there's they're, they're more equitable than, uh, than highly differentiated. Okay. We, we have a ton of 
plants in the home as well as the air purifier and not only is it just nice to have plants all around you but also it does it does definitely make an impact and i remember we we were talking one time um about just the presence of nature in an indoor space of what that does cognitively besides the air purification and i'd love to hear more about that this one's really fun and in some circles it's more of the softer science but as someone you know you've learned a little bit more of my my backstory and kind of my deep connection with what nature can do for us um i just know personally that when i came back to philadelphia from that lopez adventure i got really depressed um I felt really out of touch with things. I felt disconnected on a, like a relationship level. You know, I was out of relationship with my environment. Um, that is the single biggest way to be disconnected and, uh, uh, and destabilized. Um, you know, our environments are, are really, really fundamental to our identity. And so it makes sense to me when, you know, Stanford university last year comes out and says that, uh, disconnection from nature increases anxiety and mood disorders by 40%. Uh, you know, we're starting to see the, the, the best data we can get from the best universities out there on how to measure this stuff and how essential it is. Um, it's also why some Scandinavian countries are actually prescribing hikes and nature time to children. Um, to help them cope with behavioral disorders and even immune disorders. Um, being out in nature is really valuable on a, on a cognitive level and an emotional level for the development of healthy people um, because it is our relationship to our, you know, I want to get too sappy, but to our, our mother earth, you know, it's, it's pretty much the deep, we are made of earth, but we are, uh, going to go back to the earth. And um, when we're able to be in touch with that aspect of ourselves, it, data is showing that it is very, very good for our psychological well-being. Um, there's really fascinating research that shows that prisoners um, that have access to nature and plants um, have fewer behavioral issues um, during their sentencing. Uh, there's just there's an abundance of really compelling data. Um, and then some, some more nuanced stuff, like the human eye can perceive more shades of green than any other color, um, which makes just looking at nature visually interesting and exciting. And it, uh, it contributes to this element that um, some Japanese researchers who are really interested in forest bathing have coined. And it's the idea of, um, wakefully rested. I might be, I might be butchering that a little bit, but the whole idea is that nature makes us kind of like energetically relaxed um, where we're stimulated, but also calmed at the same time. And, it, and so it engages the parasympathetic nervous system and allows us to be tranquil, but not like sleepy. And I, I think this is just uh, also, also really cool. That's fascinating. I mean, yeah, and about the shades of green, that's, I did not know that. Um, and I, you know, heavily invest in kind of learning about color theory and how, how humans process color. And I did not know that about green. And I would imagine there's a, there's a 
reason why that that is the case um, from a nature perspective. Yeah, the the evolutionary biologists would say that the reason we can see more shades of green than any other color is if you know you're a an animal or a forager. Um, you need to know if that shade of green is to a plant that kills you or if that shade of green is to a plant that's you know gonna save you from hunger um, and being able to speciate plants and leaves is a survival strategy that our ancestors have had to rely on for millions upon millions of years that's so cool so what what are some steps that you know somebody who you know, maybe it's just, they're, they're thinking more about it. Um, they're like, Hey, I kind of want to live a more sustainable life. I've been reading things about this, but I don't really know how to go about it. Um, what would be just some good first steps that somebody could take in terms of taking care of their indoor space and their air that's around them or how they can, you know, take some time each day and get outside. You know, what are those steps that are easy, actionable ones that somebody could take? Outdoor time is always optimal. Uh, it gets fresh air, it gets you moving, it's good for your heart. So I think some of the easiest stuff to do is, you know, go for a five to 10 minute morning walk um, before your day starts. It, it will be your meditation, your exercise, and also, you know, a clean air boost to fuel your brain um, before your day. And that will just help you manage stress uh, throughout the whole day. Um, uh, I think that's something that brings me a lot of uh, benefit um, and I think is, is free and generally really easy. Um, so that's a, a really fun, easy start. I think in terms of sustainability and indoor health, uh, like I said, opening windows, um, having views uh, from your, if you're working from home, having views outdoors, really, really key. Um, I think within indoor health, it's also really important to think about what your behaviors are. Um, are you frequently you know, frying food? Um, it turns out that cooking food on a high heat is really, really horrible for your indoor air quality. Um, think about maybe how you prep your food. Um, can you steam your food? Can you um, blanch it? Can you uh, roast at a lower temperature? You know, uh, caramelizing food is a really great way to generate a tremendous amount of carcinogenic compounds um, in your air. Um, now, granted, you know, a good hood can help a lot, um, but if you've got a, an air sensor in your house, um, you've probably learned like the first day that as soon as you start cooking, it's going to spike higher than at any other point during your day. Um, so, these are simple things, you know, these are free changes to making a dramatically healthier indoor space. It might change your, your palate a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, I think palate is a far better trade-off than, you know, long-term health and well-being. Um, so I think that's a big one. Uh, and then I think within looking at your habits and your day-to-day -day interactions, it's looking at where do you sleep? Um, because that's where you're going to spend seven, hopefully eight, maybe more hours a day. And that's where, you know, your body is taking in uh, the most air uh, in your home. So thinking really conscientiously about that space, um, it's generally best to leave doors to your bedrooms open so that you can get your carbon dioxide that you're exhaling to leave the room. And you'll, you'll generally have lower CO2 levels at night in your bedroom that way. Um, if you can leave a window cracked, uh, really cool program um, 
by an organization called Hayward Healthy Home. They've created the Hayward Home Score, which allows a homeowner to go online, enter the, the basics about their home, the type of construction, the year it was built, if they've ever had water damage, and it helps you predict and understand what your likely um, concerns would be in your home. And it offer, also offers some really practical solutions. So the Hayward Score is a really cool thing to check out. Um, and then within that, one of the videos that I loved uh, that Bill, the, the founder of this organization, uh, made was just showing that in your house, if you open up one window a little bit, a couple inches or less on one side of the bill of your house or apartment, and then open another window on the other side and you get this cross breeze, um, it's really one of the most powerful ways to, uh, to keep your air fresh and uh, to reduce your carbon dioxide levels in a space. So just having a little cross breeze can be really valuable. I think especially in the bedroom um, because that air can get so stuffy. Um, so those are probably a few of the lifestyle things that are free and can truly make a big difference. And also by impacting sleep, you set the body up and the mind up the next day for way higher performance. Um, and so it starts to become this, you know, one plus one is more than a two type of an outcome. Those are great solutions that I think a lot of people can implement. Um, I, I noticed that, you know, specifically on the cooking side, uh, when we first got the air filter, we <laughs> we cooked. And the very first time, it just like the light goes from blue to red immediately. And and these are, and this is when it's, you're not searing anything. You don't really see any anything in the air. It's all the all the microscopic, particles that are really getting detected by the by the air purifier and i mean it, it comes on immediately when you do that um and that was one of the biggest eye-opening experiences for me when i was like wait wow that comes on and it and it turns on down the hall as well you know on the other side it just the way the air just flows through the home quickly um it really covers the whole space absolutely and the word you use is is it's really appropriate flow. I mean, air is uh, is way more of a solid. I mean, technically, a, like a liquid than people realize, and and it circulates uh, throughout a space, and you get pockets of it um, that can be, you know, substantially better or worse than other areas. And sometimes it will really flow. It's a really fascinating thing to try to understand. Definitely. What was your first? consciously sustainable purchase that you made you know whether it be a product or um could have been a plant i mean just anything what was that first like i'm going to take a step and be more sustainable what was that first thing that you purchased yeah so uh when i was getting ready to go to lopez i was like i don't want to bring the old with me so i went out and bought like my first pair of organic socks <laughs> um and it and it kind of seemed like this really funny thing to like you know spend money on um but it, i think it also was a, a a fun way to like really think about all the all the things that we have to be aware of and you know socks are not a glamorous thing by any means um uh but they're you know they're pretty functional and uh i don't know i, th I think there's still some more room for innovation in the organic sock department because like when you get rid of elastic and stuff you, yes the socks are a little less than optimal they don't quite stay up the same where's your favorite place to kind of enjoy nature so if you're going to get outdoors and you're just like hey i just need to go to my favorite spot to either walk or just hang out or camp 
what is your favorite place to enjoy nature? Uh, well, of late, um, been really fortunate to be able to just hop on the bike and uh, take a, an hour or so ride to the Russian River, um, which is kind of in uh, Sonoma County in California, and go for a swim in the river, uh, relax a little bit in the sunshine. I often will got like a stowable hammock to uh, to string up and and lounge out for a bit. And uh, then, you know, just, just ride home and, and make a little afternoon trip out of that on the weekend. That's, that's definitely been a highlight. Um, I think there's, there's so many other incredible places. I, being in California has just been an eye-opening experience, uh, whether that's the coast or, you know, the mountains or lakes, there's just a whole lot of incredible wilderness to experience. Um, so, yeah, got a got a number of, of favorite spots for sure. Yeah, California is just, um, you know, growing up in specifically Northern California, I think. I mean, I know there's like a little bit of a, a battle between s- Southern and Northern California, uh, especially being a Northern California person. But I mean, when you start getting up into the, the far north, you know, north of San Francisco and Santa Cruz and that kind of area. Um, you just have, you get such an appreciation for nature and the, and the power of it and, and just the beneficial qualities of just being outdoors and being in the sunshine. Um, I think it's just a really special place for that. And where do you kind of see the future of sustainability going more so in the short term, like the next five years, I'd say, where do you think the focus is going to be? And where do you think that, you know, there, there is a big opportunity that, that is opening up. I think electrification is going to continue to become, uh, pretty ubiquitous which is really exciting um i think we're going to continue to see um i'd say hyper growth in these either materials or foods that are uh grown um this is going to be i think the new the new means of manufacturing i I don't think it's far off you know i i talk with a number of folks that are working on you know growing textiles so you know, making leather out of kombucha film, so to speak, um, or having mycelium or mushrooms uh, grow into a particle board so we can stop cutting down trees to make building products. Um, I, th- I think that, well, I've seen that a number of these products are, are not that far off um, from becoming, you know, very, very usable. So that excites me. Um, in the short term, I think we definitely need more and more attention paid to uh, fashion and clothing. Um, it's a and and colorants, um, how we dye things. That area can could see a lot of beneficial innovation. Um, I, I there's so many. I mean, it's almost like every industry that our species has ever relied on needs to have incredible innovation in the next five years. Um, like healthcare needs to be highly innovative in this space. And, you know, even traditional technology, you know, needs to really be pushing uh, the products and, and the cloud infrastructure that we're all using in order to be hyper sustainable. So gosh, it is, uh, <laughs> it's a big open field for people to come in and, and just create stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a huge opportunity in that. And you have, I mean, you're seeing a lot of 
a lot of innovation i think in the material space is starting to come come out i think in the fashion space as well you have you know some companies that are really trying to make things more sustainable um out of out of different materials the material space i think is fascinating and i think that's that's just a really cool space what is the best piece that you have created um through learning ceramics and pottery because um, you mentioned that briefly and and i think that uh, it's it's such an interesting hobby and space to think about um and i'm and and a really cool creative outlet so i i had a couple of different uh learning experiences within ceramics i got to work with an italian kind of master craftsman traditional potter and then i actually apprenticed uh, a wood-fired potter in arkansas um, on his compound and that was that was like a five month internship there because I really wanted to understand, you know, the, the most traditional way to fire ceramics. Uh, it was the, uh, they're not sure exactly if like if Japanese or the Koreans were like the founders of the, the Anagama style kiln. Um, but it's a really traditional uh, kiln built into a hillside. And uh, you basically fire this thing once a year. It's like your whole livelihood is packed hundreds and hundreds of pots into this long kiln. And then you start a fire at the base of it and the heat travels up through all these pots and you just feed this thing wood day and night, day and night. Um, we did a, a 10 day firing. Um, so this is in around the clock. It's a pretty spiritual you know, occasion. And you never really know what you're gonna end up with. Um, it depends on a lot of different variables and conditions, but you then wait 10 days and you let the cool kiln, uh, the kiln cool off um, slowly so you don't crack the pots again. And, and then you open it up and there's this big, beautiful kiln ceremony. So that was, that was a really neat way of understanding like pre-industrial you know, ceramic uh, industry and artistry. Uh, really, really cool effects came out of, of that. But I think one of my favorite specific pieces uh, came from pit firing, um, where you, you basically dig a hole in the ground, you lay your pieces. <laughs> this is like an act of like uh, staring fear and, and stress in the eyes and being like, and, you know, being like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. So you dig this hole, you put your, your ceramics, you know, unfired clay in the bottom of this and you build a bonfire on top of it <laughs> and uh whatever doesn't break um usually has some really cool effects um gets it gets fired this is almost like a traditional way of cooking um in the ground so i had put, i made a piece uh I, I just had called it fear and uh it was pretty much a ceramic helmet um with like a kind of a narrow opening in front of the eyes um and the whole idea of this was at that point, I was just wrestling with a lot of these emotions around, you know, being, being afraid to, to be a human, you know, am I as a, as a human on this earth, am I actually doing anything good for the planet and, you know, being fearful of what I am. And uh, there's just a lot of heavy emotions. So I made this piece to signify that like uh, a lot of the emotions that we experience are often things that we can remove and, that they are not part of who we are and they can feel really heavy. You know, when I put on this helmet, like it's, it's hulking. It's just like, it is oppressive. It blocks out all of the good. It blocks out the light. Um, and it's in a way how a lot of um, mental health and anxiety 
aspects of our well-being can can kind of shade everything else that's going well in our lives. But at the same time, if we find a way, there's there's a way to take this helmet off. And um, and so I loved that metaphor of it. But then also throwing this this piece or you know putting this piece into the bottom of a fire was a whole nother layer of like looking at fear and acknowledging that, you know, I'm going to bypass this fear and the end result is going to be better. Um, and so it's not the most beautiful piece. And, you know, for most people looking at it there, it's just kind of a sculptural object. Um, but for me that, that carried a lot of purpose. Wow. Wow. And talk about transformative too. And, and, and honestly meaningful. I think that's one of the coolest things about, um, artistry is you're able to express yourself in a way that, you know, those that understand and see it understand that vision, but more so it's transformative for the person who's creating it. And I think that's, that's the really cool part of it. It's definitely a, a healing part of, of artistry. I, another reason why I, I think, you know, art is such an essential part of, you know, childhood development and, you know, it needs to be an important part of schooling. Um, it's a, it's a way to deal with our emotions and our complex feelings, uh, as people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, final, final thing I'd love just, you know, how can people find out about biome, you know, read about it, engage with it, talk to you. Um, what's kind of a best way for the, for that to kind of happen? Uh, great question. Um, visiting our website is a really great place to start. Um, we're biome.us, B-I-O-M-E.us. We're on Instagram and, uh, that's probably the main way to, to reach out as well. And then um, I'm kind of building a Twitter group. And so if you want to find Biome on Twitter, um, I'm also there, not super active, trying to also build up Medium. So yeah, if, uh, look around for uh, my name and it'd be great to connect. Um, I'm also available on email, uh, colin at biome.us. Colin with two L's. Cool, two L's. Awesome. Well, Colin, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, um, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and, and so informative about the indoor space. I think, um, you know, when people finish listening to this, they're probably going to look around their their home or their office um, or even their vehicle and, and not only see all the shades of green, but probably also think about what everything's made of in their place. Um, so <laughs> I think that's super beneficial. Um, and I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. Yeah, well, thanks for wanting to shed some light on these these topics and welcoming me into your your podcast. Really excited to be a part of it and uh, looking forward to some next steps with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. It was so great to have Colin on the show and learn more about biome and plant health and how you know we can make this indoor space that we live in all the time a little bit more healthy. So. There are links to more info in the show notes and thank you so much for listening to the show and we'll see you on the next episode of Sustainable Goat.